In the Wild West world of podcasting, there is one podcast that is authentic and genuine and continues to stand tall in its originality. Based on a passion for his guests, their work, and his love of podcasting, Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast get amazing, diverse, unique guests found nowhere else. The variety and quality are endless. There is something for everyone. Derek Thomas is the hero you deserve. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. You are seeking a chemist? Yes. To formulate compounds for a job? And to go into the field with us? No, I rarely go into the field, Mr. Cobb. Well, we need you there to tailor compounds specific to our needs. Which are? Great depth. A dream within a dream. Two levels. Three. Not possible. That many dreams within dreams is too unstable. It is possible. You just have to add a sedative. A powerful sedative. How many team members? Five. Six. The only way to know you've done the job if I got you with you. There's no room for tourists on a job like this, Mr. Satan. This time, it seems there is. This, I think, is a good place to start. I use it every day. What for? Yeah, I'll show you. Perhaps you will not want to see. After you. Well, we're all connected, bloody hell. They come every day to share the dream. You see? Very stable. How long do they dream for? Three, four hours each day. You dream, Tom? With this compound? About 40 hours each and every day. Why do they do it? Tell him, Mr. Carl. After a while, it becomes the only way you can dream. Do you still dream, Mr. Cobb? They come here every day to sleep. No. They come to be woken up. The dream has become the reality. <laughs> Who are you to say otherwise? <laughs> Hi, I'm Dilip Rao, and you're listening to Monday Morning Critic. So, man, there's a bunch of things I want to talk to you about before acting. Um, First of which is all great people are born in 73. I think we can both appreciate that and agree with that. Uh, I was listening to an interview you did, I want to say, um, maybe a year ago. And you were going off on Vic Fangio. You were going off. Like, I'm like, I, I can't wait to ask him about Nathaniel Hackett. Like, so we oh. fast. But here's, here's before you go into this, here's my thing with Denver, right? Their defense is fantastic. That trade looked great. I mean, it, I mean, it's easy to look back now and say, I can't figure out Denver. They have weapons everywhere. So, Dilip, we'll start with a Denver Broncos uh, intro. So here's the thing that I think is really important when you're talking about things like a fan. You can separate your emotions and how you feel about the state of things, and that's just venting and splenetic, and it is what you think, okay? If you're really going to have analysis, though, you have to, like you started saying, it is time-based, what you know in the moment, knowledge in the moment, uh, the decision is made. That right. stuff really matters, right? I think Peyton, generally speaking, as a, as a GM – 
has moment to moment made really good choices. He's drafted well. He's hired well. I think he thought the Hackett would get him Rodgers. I really do think he thought that. I don't know if that's a great idea, but mm. I think that's what he thought, right? And um, it didn't happen. He trades for Wilson. He figures it will work out. Now, there is blind spots. There are blind spots and all this stuff. Like I think part of the problem is that Hackett is a very nice guy. He is uh, sort of a gold-minted man of the NFL Insider Boys Club. Right. And he isn't really qualified for that job, right? So when it came down to doing that job, like really doing that job, he's not your man. He's not experienced enough and he hasn't done it. So that all bore itself out completely. Russell, it turns out, is really not the player he once was. And maybe, you know, through the extraordinary work of uh, of Pete Carroll and his offense, through the years, they hid his defects a lot. And I think that he does have defects in his play. Like every player, I'm not saying others don't, but um, it's been underwhelming. It's really sad. Uh, I hated Fangio. I thought that he was just not qualified either. I think right. he's not a good head coach. But I don't think Hackett's even close to qualified to be a head coach. I think he has to go. I think they have to eat it. I personally think they should cut Russ and eat it in two years, blow out the cap hit, and get on with it. I think you should pull the band-aid. I don't think there's a way to fix that. So that that situation seems moribund. But then again, look, I'm an actor. They don't pay me to be a GM. <laughs> so, so what do I know, right? I'm yeah. just talking about it as a fan. but. I think there are a lot of things you have to give Peyton credit for. Um, the new ownership is here. You really do hope things. I mean, I think the real mistake here, the huge catastrophic uh, franchise killing mistake here is is the extension. That's yeah. the, they prematurely gave him an extension before they saw him play. And I think that was probably the part that's going to damage the franchise for the short term. Yeah, I mean, and I look like you said he's they've drafted really well. Uh, Judy, uh, they've got a lot of weapons, yeah. you know. And, and defensively, sure. defensively, they're as good as any defense in the NFL. You know, absolutely. I mean, that's why we can't lose Evero, and I think that's one of the tricky things. Also, is trying to sift wheat and chaff, and the wheat is Evero, the chaff is Hackett. And how do you sift that correctly? Do you make Evero your head coach? I don't know if he's ready to be head coach yet. Like you know, it's it's a tricky thing. I think that he, hopefully, he can stay for a couple years as a defensive coordinator. We can get a better head coach in and. You know, we can see what we can do with the Russ. I personally think you should cut him. I don't think there's anything there, but yeah, um, yeah. that's what it is. In New England, we have a defensive coordinator as our offensive coordinator, and, and I'm not really happy with the way things are going in New England either. So I guess I guess we're both miserable in our own little ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you have the Belichick brain trust. They're like, yeah, I don't think Matt Patricia should be calling plays for you guys. And I don't think you 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 know monkeying around and playing. They're playing like you know. Footloose and fancy free with the titles there. They're oh, who doesn't matter who calls you out? You know, like they were talking. Belichick was talking a lot of crap, but I yeah. think they've got some problems they have to figure out. But I think, look, you guys are competitive. Like that's a that's a team that plays week in and week out. They're not in like a moribund state. The Broncos are in a moribund state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and, and the fact that you love football, I just love that. Like you're really passionate about it, and yeah, that, yeah, it's that's great. Uh, man, so let's get into this wonderful acting career of yours. Um, sure. So, so, so med school, was that an easy choice to walk away from we, we, when you, to be clear, you know, I wasn't as close as other people are. I was into it. I was going to go do that. Yeah. Right. Um, I, you know, you're, you get these moments in your life where you choose and you make consequential choices. And I made a consequential choice that I thought was obvious to me. Looking back now, part of the joy of that is your ignorance when you make that choice, right? You make a, mm. a little Lord Fauntleroy decision because your future is upon you. Right. Uh, you're still a young man. And you still have, uh, you know, infinite avenues, you think. Yeah. Or you do because you're young. You don't have yeah. any burdens and responsibilities. or You also don't even know what your choices mean, right? And um, it was not hard for me to stop thinking about that because I think 
you know, for me, that was a path that could have, with some hard work, yielded a good future. But it was also in keeping with the traditional norm for my family and me and my ethnic culture and what was easy for me in my upbringing was that kind of academic work and the kind of, um, to be a really great doctor, you know, is to be beyond just being an excellent student and scientist and um, aptitudinal learner of what is in front of you. It is to also synthetically process what is happening to a living organism in front of you with the knowledge being the template upon which you, how you see through it. Right. And right. I think that would, would have been fun and challenging, but to become an actor in my generation, at least um, that seemed like such an incredible challenge and very difficult. And um, I wanted, I wanted that. I wanted it for myself. I heard my voice. I saw myself um, having something to contribute. And I really wasn't totally sure at the beginning what that was. Right. I just yeah. knew I loved doing it. And then as it became more manifest to me, it became more personal. And then it became, I think, which I think it has to be, if it's going to be a, a lifelong passion or a lifelong career, you know? Right, right, um, right. It became something of, of great interest to me beyond that. Yeah, and, and it's the leap of faith uh, that I find so amazing. Like, you have to, I mean, and I hear everything you're saying, right? But, like, that leap of faith to, to walk to walk away from something, to, 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 to go into the unknown, to the abyss, like, that is, that is the, the part that actors, especially you, do that I just can't wrap my head around. It's, like, such an amazing, you know, a gut call at the time right just you, i'm going for it yeah you do have to have that faith and fortitude it also as i said helps that you don't really know right yeah like there's no one at that age that's fully cognizant of the price of what it is how 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 high a price you pay to be an artist right You're right to really if you really want to do it i think at the level of inquiry which right. i do um i think that that has to be something that you can't be fully aware of or you'd hesitate you know, yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah. it does take sort of jumping in with both feet. And look, I'll be honest with you, for me, acting is not easy. And I'm not necessarily uh, to the manner born. You know, I my parents aren't in it. I didn't learn any like great aptitude for it when I was younger. I think I had a certain amount of like talent when I, by the time I went to drama school, I kind of understood there were some things to my work that could become, you know, of value. But um, it's all hard fought and very hard won. And from moment to moment, time to time, I'm never even sure exactly how good it is for what it's doing, but I know that the inquiry, right, at the point where you're starting to make art or trying to make art, right, you're involved in an inquiry into human truth. And that, to me, at least is the place that I want to live my life and begin my work from always. So yeah. at least in that way, the correct, to me, um, beginning place is part of my natural setup now. So I feel a lot more capable uh, of beginning that inquiry correctly. And of course, you, as a craftsperson in any field, no matter what you do, if you spend enough time doing it, you'll gain a lot of tools and a lot of um, skill sets, you know? Yeah. And, and the high the high bar that you're going to try to go for, even from back then when you were a kid and want to choose it, you're trying to explore the art of the world you live in and the life you've led and be the truth teller about the human condition. Yeah, that's well said. And, and, you know, for those listening and, and through my research, just reading about your life, listening to interviews, you are just a really bright guy. Like, I mean, you're, the, the depth of detail that you go into with choices, with your answers, it's just it's just remarkable. I would be remiss. And I know you've talked a little bit about this. I find this super impressive. The, the, the fact that you weren't on like Celebrity Jeopardy, you weren't like just a contestant. Wasn't a celebrity, <laughs> no, dude. But, but, but no, what, what I'm saying is like, like I feel like you you won. I, I feel like that's such a like a, a a monumental achievement that you can't just say, yeah, I want. But like, it's 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 monumental for you for so many reasons. I'm impressed by it because of what it entails. Right? Uh, you used the money to really help you. Um, what was that experience like? And do you remember the final question you ended up winning? On? Oh, of course, yeah. Um, yeah okay. I do remember. 
uh, it was it was it was two thousand two, so it was very current. It was a very um, a resident at the moment. He said uh, that he it was a uh, this John. It was actors and roles, believe it or not. Wow! And I was leading going into final, um, and I believe it was John Voight played him on film in two thousand one, and John Turturro played him on television in two thousand two. And yeah. so I instantly knew it, and I was like, yeah. "Well, I already bet a ton." So I was like, "If I don't get actors and roles, I don't deserve to win this." Right? <laughs> and and the week had also the shows of that day, that week's shows, you know. That they shoot on the day, the the payouts have been really high, so that tends to sometimes carry over. Not all the time, but from show to show during the week, because it, it's all shot on the same day, you right. can feel the momentum to bet high for that payouts to be high. They love that, right? They want it to be successful and exciting. So I bet a ton, and I I won a lot of money. And um, you know, for me, that was like uh, I always had a hand in like the trivia world and loving uh the trivia stuff. And I went to say I still go to the same pub quiz I've gone to for twenty some odd years. And um, it was kind of like a funny throwback to uh, a previous me, right? The, the me that read the encyclopedia as a kid and that wanted to be Encyclopedia Brown. Because I, right. I was like, I am Encyclopedia, I am Brown. No, yeah. but I, I wanted to, you know, to be knowledgeable. And then, you know, it's very funny about all that is by the time you get to Jeopardy and you get some of these really serious pub quizzes, you run into like the NFL. <laughs> right? yeah. You run into the people like, like Patrick Friel and Jerome Vered and Brad Rutter. Um, Cliff Gallagher, people who are just unbelievable, Pam Mueller, people who are so unbelievably deep and their resonant knowledge of the whole structure of knowing things is vibrating at a totally other level. And I'm good. I'm not in any way like, you know, I'm not poo-pooing my game. I'm pretty good still. Yeah. Although age, your recall goes, you know, a little bit. But um, these people are from another planet. Like, And so th- th- it's both humbling and fun. And I, I love having my hand in that world. It is something about being bright, but it's also about curiosity, right? Sure. I think being a trivia person, it, it can be often maligned and not unfairly. That <laughs> it's a it's a collection of kind of geekery or kind of like um, a subset. But those are my people, right? You come to that bar that we do the trivia. It is a nerdy place that, on that night, and it's yeah. great. And the people who are there are comfortable, and they're comfortable to be themselves, and they they're forthright about what they know and don't know, and the humility and the intensity of how well they know what they know that'll always blow me away so i, I always have a hand in that i always love that it, it did it changed my life i got i won enough money to not have to take a tremendous amount of day job i had a little bit of day job then but i could also you know live off it like a writing fellowship i could write screenplays and right. get a writing agent for a while and like i could kind of put my hand in film and keep keep my career like survivable in los angeles right and the jeopardy and the money from that championship made a huge difference in that way how how close was the next appearance? Were you close to winning? Because because you, you you automatically come back. The, to the next... the, yeah, the problem for me was I I had I was the last show of my day. I was the Friday. That often happens with LA people. They wait till the end because they can keep you and you just come back. Whereas they have to keep them here in LA in a hotel. So they like to keep that. So I was the last show of my day, and I was if I had gone right away because I was really in good rhythm with the, with a the buzzer. And yeah. I felt really good. I think I would have kept going. I don't know how many shows, but I think I would have probably won at least one more. But yeah. I had to come back in two weeks, and I had a migraine when I came back, and I couldn't read the board. And the whole thing for me on Jeopardy is reading the clue. Now, obviously, I'm not one of these people like Ken Jennings or you know uh, um, uh, the recent guy, I forgot his name, but they're they're just of another. They would have won 30, 40, 50, 60 shows. I might have won another one. Like you know, yeah. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, it, it was unfortunate for me. I couldn't really read this so it was very difficult for me to answer the questions and i was in a lot of pain that day and you know no excuse making i won one day and i'm proud of that and the rest is gravy and i don't need it so i was very very happy i lost the second day also and that's a bummer but you know that's also life 
Yeah, 99% of us can't win that one, so that's amazing. Um, you have a try. How, how do you find how'd you find Alex to be good guy? Great, wonderful, yeah. uh, funny, kind of uh, um he has to put on the face of the guy who knows everything that's being asked. Yeah. And he's very good at that. And so there's a shamelessness to that that's kind of like you're like, whoa. Like yeah. he acts like he knows what's on that paper, right? But yeah, yeah. that is the art of hosting a game show, right? Yeah. It's not the the art of hosting a game show is not to be like um self-regarding in a way that preserves you. It's to be self-regarding in a way that preserves the show. Yeah. So he's really, really was a wonderful man. He was um you know, a kind of eccentric fellow himself. Uh, if you ever saw that governor's debate he moderated, you're like, this guy's a very interesting dude himself. Yeah. Um, but lovely, you know, a lovely man. He um he he is sorely missed in our community. He was beloved. If anyone in this committee can be beloved, this community can be beloved, not committee. Community can be beloved. It was Alex Trebek and he was um a touchstone for a lot of us. Those of us that went on the show, he'll always be a part of our having interacted with show business, you know, like, and right. he was a wonderful, wonderful dude. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I really was pulling for uh LeVar Burton to get that. And I would no disrespect to anybody now, but I just felt like he would have been a perfect, just fit right in plug and play. It would, he would have been awesome at that job. Yeah. I think the thing that was underestimated um, in putting this host search together was what the host needs to do. And the host right. doesn't need to seem smart. Although he did, he's right. very smart. Right. He doesn't need to seem like he's a virtuoso of trivia. He needs to feel like he's really good on camera, which Lavar right. is. You know, Lavar's an oh, actor, yeah. he's a fantastically talented actor, and he's um, he's also been such a part of education that I think he would have been a great fit. His reading rainbow background is more like this, right? And I would have been really, really excited for him to get it. Uh, you know, Ken's fine. I think Ken's. Uh, I've met Ken. I've, I've spoken with him several times. Right. Um, Ken's fine. It's great. I, I was pulling for Buzzy because I know him, and, I, and Buzzy's hilarious to me. Yeah, and he's also yeah. got a sense of like a wiseacre in him. And I, yeah. I, I wanted that for the show, but um, I think it's in good hands now. It, you can't get everything you want in that regard, and he's perfectly fine. Yeah, well said. You know, when you go to this pub for the trivia, do they know your background? Do they know what you do for a living? Do they? Oh yeah, like, I, I, okay. I, I was a struggling actor in, uh, you know, doing a ton of uh, auditioning and stage work. I mostly been a stage actor most of my life. Uh, for years before I got the movies I got, and I got those movies nine, ten years, and oh, eight years into playing there. So everyone knew when it happened, like, oh, this is, he's starting to do this stuff, right? And I was like, yeah, it's not going to come out for a long time. And, you know, it was, um, they've all been there for me. They've all been wonderful to me. Um, people come and go, but some people yeah. there have known me for the entire time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I love the, I love how you answer that. Um, are you, are you a big, um, into any universes like DC, Marvel, Star Wars, Star Trek? Are you into any of those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so when I grew up, I was a comic book nerd. I went to a place in Claremont where I was, that's where I went to high school in eighth grade, Claremont, California, yeah. called Comic Bookie. I would go in there and read the comics nice. and buy some when I could afford them. And he was a great guy, that guy who ran that place. Um, so, yeah, I've been a DC guy. I, I liked Marvel. I liked the um, Magneto was my favorite always, which is weird. But I liked him, even though he was the quote-unquote villain. Because yeah. I thought that he was more reasonable, right? And I thought that he was more, like, um, philosophically interesting. Yeah. Um, whereas I thought... Professor X was obviously very smart, and all the X Men are amazing, but they're kind of like stock good guys. And right, Magneto right. was not stock anything, and so I, I liked him. Um, but I think of the universes, uh, Batman and the DC spoke more to me. Um, the first, you know, superhero movie I ever saw was Superman with Christopher Reeve, and that's oh. at the standard for like goodness, you know, and like grace, yeah. and and a kind of, you know, one of the greatest things about um, that legend 
is Schuster and Siegel wanting someone to protect them from the anti-Semitism and the, the extirpation of their people? They were feeling a threat of that, right? Not right. only the pogroms of history, but right then was World War II and the Holocaust and, and to, to want to bring into being, to conjure, right, uh, a super being who cannot be stopped, who will stand for good and for what's right. It's from a child's point of view almost, right? right. Um, to give that uh, a, a face and a voice and you know, a theme, which John Williams did. Um, it's uh, it's truly one of the most beautiful movies. And I, I also really love that version of the character. So yeah, I'm a DC guy. Star Wars was gigantic for me. I, you know, I, it was so influential in me, in me that I'd seen it so many times before I even knew what acting really would be for me. Like what, right. what doing that job would be. I've always wanted to be part of that world so much, but you know, it, mm. it's all about like the businesses and stuff. But I think that you know, things change. You get older, things are made for new generations. You don't own them, right? They own them. Right. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of the prequel uh, trilogy. Um, some of it, there was parts of it that are all right, but I generally didn't care for it. Um, I kind of like parts of this new sequel trilogy a little bit more. Like I liked some things that really turned on the youth centers in my my imagination. I thought Andor was absolutely insanely good. Like I thought awesome. that was one of the best things I've seen. Yeah, that and Rogue One to me were like the original, right? And I, I think that like it, the, the fear of the Empire that Endor uh, produced was how terrifying and Nazi-like, and um, you know, there's a if you read about the Third Reich, as awful as they are, um, one of the things that really is scary is just how grubby and and power hungry and not um, they were fearsome but stupid, you know, and like kind of yeah. ugly and like. This has all that feel of like just revulsion, you know. And I really, I also love Diego Luna. I think he's such a fantastic actor. And that's fantastic such good work. Yeah, it's 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 somebody once described it as the Private Ryan of um, Saving Private Ryan of of Star Wars movies. And I'm like, that's it's a really, that's really good. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah, pretty yeah. Good. yeah. Yeah, and Andor. I mean, that music. It just it it, it hit me. The, the, the cinematography. It hit me like when he's. I think one of the first episodes. He's he's reflecting on back when he was a kid. The camera pans back, and it's modern day. It's like, oh my god! I feel like I, I was gut punched. I was like, oh my god! Like it gave me. Yeah, the that's feel. Tony, that, to me. That's Tony Gilroy. Like that's uh, to, to me. That's like you know. You start to see like certain touchstones in in the business you work in, and yeah. to me, Tony Gilroy and Michael Clayton, and then some of the Bourne stuff he did too, but especially Michael Clayton, you just saw a guy who was writing some of the finest work in film, and can shoot and direct it if he needs to too. And being a showrunner on that show, he is the look and feel of that thing. And I know they're very inclusive and diverse diverse staff, and they have a lot of people working writing in the writers' room and directors who did it. But you can feel his hands all over that, and that's I think the feels you're talking about. That's Tony Gilroy. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned the last three. I think they've aged a lot better than people give them credit for. Uh, my last question about this is there's a lot of toxic fandom, I feel like, Dalip. Like, it's so over the top. I mean, so, a lot of the Star Wars characters went through it. Um, yep. You know, um, DC has fan, it. Yep. Yeah, Mar Marvel has it. Like, yep. where is it? Where's that line? I mean, as an actor, you're the perfect person to answer this. Somebody who loves, you know, their, their craft, who, who is a fan of their craft. Like, wh when is it? too much when is it okay you've crossed the line like this is enough i mean obviously harassing somebody is beyond yeah that's obvious right we're trying to find a, we're trying to find a, a more uh usable line that's an obvious line right that's like, right a more useful line I, I think look this is a complex thing it's reasons are about identity and the time we live in now where everyone's identity is supposed to be their politics and everyone's supposed to fight for their identity as the most victimized group and uh, and, and without uh, you know being 
I don't know, acknowledging the people who really are victims, like marginalized people, people who really genuinely don't have a chance, or people who have been harmed physically, like trans people, like for no reason other than people just want to do that, right? Right. So we're living in a time where everyone wants to be the righteous victim and uh, even take that away from the actual righteous victim. So I think part of what you have to realize in a fan, because the word comes from fanatic, right, is that you don't... Your passion should not be measured in the lengths you're willing to go to that are socially transgressing to make your point. And we have to find a better space where people can say, hey, I passionately just don't like that. You know, right, or right. like to also to say, I think instead of trying to find reasons and hateful things for why you don't want something, it might be easier and better if we just gave everyone kind of a pass to be like, I don't like it. And uh, we can just know you for that, right? Like you know, a lot of the poisonous shit that comes out is like, you ruined my childhood. Why is that woman in this thing? Why is that, uh, you know, Korean girl, like a star in a Star Wars movie? Like, fuck that, you know, and you're like, yeah. okay, so what if you just said you don't like that because you're racist or sexist or misogynist? <laughs> or what if you just point. say you don't like it, right? Yeah. And then we don't have to have a reason like that, like somehow your childhood is sacred. Like, you know, I- I'll just give this example. And I've said it before. I, I did a stage production of Sense of Sensibility. And I played Colonel Brandon. And Rickman has always been a hero to me. His work is some of the greatest work that's ever been done on stage or in front of a camera. And I got to play a part that Alan Rickman played. And I, someone did some research and said, you know, you're the first person of color to play this part in America, ever. And I was like, well, I guess there haven't been that many versions of it. But yeah, it's kind of cool, right? And it was a, it was a kind of multicultural, in, in, inclusive, lots of people of color, um, diverse cast. And, you know, someone had written on some online thing, like, why do they have to make this you know, diverse. This is not how I remember it. And so then I, I was speaking to someone about this and she was like, you know, I kind of understand that perspective. I'm like, yeah, I, I know what you do, but let me just say this. It's also our heritage, right? Right. Uh, Jane Austen is also my heritage as an English speaking person, as a person of Indian and my parents are from India when it was part of Britain. Right. 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 So I have some British like feeling in my life. Certainly my organized brain has some of that in it. So this is my heritage too. And I want to play it. Right. And I want the right to be up there and do it. And, um, we have to be willing to be okay with other people also doing things that we want to do or we want to be a certain way. We're never going to own it. We can't. Right, like, right. If I'm a fan of Star Wars. I don't know Star Wars. Like, I don't. I don't have any say as to who does what. Right. Yeah. I just want to like it and root for it. And when it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I don't. I'm not. I, I think when you're a fan, if you're addressing people in it personally, and and you're trying to blame them for being there. You should take a minute, you know, and look in the mirror and be like, what am I doing? If you hate on someone because you don't think they're deserving of what they got, and we all do that, every person does that, then you need to ask yourself why that matters to you, right? Like, these are personal questions. Like, can you live with other people's success? Can you live with other people being part of your dream too, right? Right. They own it too. It's not just yours. And even to the degree it is yours, be humble in the small part of it that is yours. It's everyone else's as well, so. Yeah, and you know, that, useful, they, I don't know. That's a great, that's a great, great answer. And they are because I was thinking about this because they are just terrible to Brie Larson. She'll put something on her Instagram about just something unre- like her working out or her like doing, and they just are, they are just horrible human beings. Like it's just, it's a cesspool of people that just, it's gross. You know, part of what you're describing there, though, I think is um, it's complicated, mismanaged transition of American masculinity that has been the the dominant form of masculinity since the middle 20th century, right? It's right. a kind of post-John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, um, 
It's a mismanagement of the transitions of these things that nothing nothing holds, right? Everything changes. This right, is not some right. random time we live in. It's every every period has had change. And I think part of it is they're seeing women like Brie Larson who are sexually desirable to the median person, right? Median straight man. Right. Um, they find them desirable. They don't like them having an independent voice and power base of their own. They don't like them having opinions that don't include their um desires or their eye They're, that male gaze that uh, i forget who said it. i think it's like camille Paglia. i can't remember who said it like the male gaze right that it's the yeah. orientation of how we look at the world and as a man you know it like it's not a fucking mystery we all know that we have this power and had this power and it wasn't right because it wasn't fair like it where's the female gaze like when has that been central it's it's so rare that it sticks out right and right I think the part of what the the rage against people like brie larson is that someone who is talented and uh in things people care about is being given access and power that people want reserved for only the people they like it for and then the automatic response to a woman especially i think a, a, a attractive woman right uh, especially attractive white woman yeah. is misogyny if she was black it would be racism and misogyny right so right right that, there's a, there's a kind of like the cheap tropes it's all kind of sadly obvious and stupid but it also is human beings having to suffer through it. And, it. and because of social media, these things become acute and they actually are put into the face and body of the person they want to harm. You, you, they are harmed, right? Right. And, right. Um, you know, we're all in an exacerbated state because of this. It's not been, we haven't found a new social governance rule for how we behave in these spaces. Right. So it just, uh, it's, it is ugly. It's awful. And I wish it wasn't that way. And I think we should all want more for ourselves and for other people to be treated better you know yeah and they sound so stupid because she's an academy award winner she's a freaking wonderful actor uh, oh my God. you know portman i think takes took took crap from the last thor movie it's like she's another i think academy award winner or nominee like she is, she is yes multiple so it's nominee like, winner. They're, they're they're coming at people that have have proven that i mean you don't have to prove your worth to win by winning academy award but it's certainly a reflection of hey you know your, your argument or your hate towards these people looks idiotic well, you know, we're also in this situation where, like, um, if you remember Napster, a lot of people had to take the hits and uh, kick the drop, right? Like, they just take the stuff they wanted and just get the – and forever the um, uh, CD business would, would rue the day they forced us to buy tracks we didn't want, right? That's like right. sort of a, a thing. I think part of what we're also dealing with that's very similar to that is status grubbing, right? Like, that there always was a kind of status granted to stars and, and people who get to be in front of the camera and have their face seen. There's a status to that, right? And like people are right now in our era of where we live, there's like a certain amount of like distress people feel that others are being given something like status or privilege or um, recognition maybe even, and they are not. And so the venom comes from, well, I'm nobody, so I get to be evil to you because you have what I want, right? And there's something that is lost. In, it's lost to all of us, but it's lost in our time, which is the beautiful pleasure, dignity, and nobility of being an anonymous, normal person doing your life, right? Mm -hmm. Go to work, take care of your kids if you have them, or do a good job, you know? And, you know, we're now all caught up in this kind of um, pageantry and, and, and a, a form of... Um, display that it, it's unbecoming to being an adult really right right and right. it's just it's without restraint you know the, the measure of an adult is their capacity for self-restraint yeah yeah well said well said and you know speaking of actors and a great filmography i'm, I'm talking to one now um you, you know what was your um when, when you decided to 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 
past my medical school, you, you wanted to dive into acting. Was there a moment that you really found yourself like, what was the most meaningful moment moving forward where you either learned the craft or, I mean, I mean, with acting, it's a lot of little things. Like it's something you learn in theater. It's something, a coach, it's a yeah. mentor. Is there one that stands out for you? Like that, that was the difference maker for me. This is, this is what really got, got the ball rolling as an actor. Do you feel like there's one moment or you think it's a collective bunch to leave? It's a collective bunch, but I'll give you, I think, a, a, a insight into my understanding of this process, right? Okay. And yep. that is that the, there's something you have to learn about speaking, um, talking, listening, and speaking on impulse. And the impulse of I'm talking to you, you say something, I speak off you, right? Like, this is normal how we talk. This is how right. people behave. But in a play or, you know, later on in front of a camera, this has to become um, attuned to a finer degree and you have to be able to obviously save the lines that way, right? And right. so learning the Meisen repetition, which is an acting training technique, which is about re repetition of phrases, that it strips the text out of the impulse game of the kinetic form of what call and response is in human speech and human speaking. That, to me, activated the native part of me that was already starting to work but I didn't have an understanding of, right? Right, right. And, and, and there's like moments like in acting, that, especially when you're young and you kind of were learning. It's like, you know, in, in Empire Strikes Back when Luke has uh, Yoda balanced and the case balanced and he's, on his, <laughs> he's standing upside down and like he's trying to get it. And that's kind of what it's like. Like you feel the things come on and they don't last and you can't control them. And that was the first time I think I learned how to control and understand that there's a craft to that call and response and being in the moment and producing your responses from a natural organic place. Um, that was huge to me. There's also this idea of like, you know, you, the audience is so good, they're detecting what you're doing. So right. just do it, right? You're not, if you're trying to do something, they're gonna see someone trying to do something, which if right. that's what your character's trying to do something, great. But if your right. character's supposed to be doing the thing you're trying to do, you're gonna look like you're trying to do the thing you're supposed to be doing, right? right. And uh, that is also a hugely insightful thing. I think, you know, it's, the other huge thing that comes, I think, when you've done it for a while, and some people are absolutely precocious in this way, but it took me a while, is that the highest bar in acting is can you tell the truth about what you know, the things that make you uh, afraid, vulnerable, shamed, in pain, um, the things that make you human, right? Can you yeah. put them into what you – can you look ugly? Can you look silly? Can you take a risk in one take – where you don't pull it off, it's bad acting, right? And right. then you circle back and you do it, and then you find the curve and you find you solve the problem, right? And um, can you be brave enough for that? Um, and it's related to everything we know about as as we get to be adults. Like we can, we're you know we're we're cathected when we're younger to try to be cool and unnoticed, and like we're going to be like um, masterful and apt and have high. Um, uh, uh, a skill, a highly skillful response to everything. But all of that becomes very anodyne and plasticized and there's no humanity in it. And yeah. we, when we get to do what we do, the insights that, that have been most meaningful to me are about how vulnerable can I be in this situation and how can I lay for myself the bar of really experiencing this as opposed to um, sketching it so that you understand, I transmit the story to you, but I'm not, I have nothing on the line. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. the easier way to do it. Sometimes you have to do that because you can't get it. Right. But right. the higher art, the 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 deeper uh the lightning, right? The lightning isn't really experiencing something that's very hard to do. 
So yeah, yeah. Uh, the the Empire Strikes Back analogy, perfect. I got it. As soon as you said that, yeah. I, I I I got it. Um, That's good. You, yeah, you have a wonderful filmography. I just picked a couple: Inception, uh, Drag Me to Hell, um, Avatar. I have to tell you, I haven't seen Avatar on purpose because I want to speak to you first. Uh, two weeks ago, I, I go to the movies. I try to go every weekend. And mm. two weeks ago, they have the. I, I, I'm a sucker for these things, so I bought my uh, my Avatar cup. I want you to know that. And I'm not, this is the best one. Hey, this is the best one. I love the tins they're coming out with Ooh, now. Ooh, yeah. I have a I have a Force Awakens one that I have on my shelf. Yeah. So I was like, I got, I got to get it. But like, so James Cameron said Avatar came to him in a dream. Um, and I feel like your work in, in these three particular was is amazing. Um, do you feel like it was? Do you feel the pressure of like a Nolan set? Do you feel the pressure of a Cameron set? Like these are the best oh, of the best. Like these are the yeah. Belichick's of you know uh, of movie yeah. making. Uh, oh, how do yeah. you get how do you get around that? How do you get around that? Well, I you know I think a I was lucky that I was a little bit older. I was in my twenties. I was in my thirties, so that helps yeah. a little. So I had a little more maturity. Um, also, I think there's a part of you that having done as much theater as I'd done that to that point, and after especially I did Avatar, which is my first movie ever, is that you learn so much about how to do your job and you learn to let that machine inside you start running, even though part of you is like geeking out or freaking out, you know, like where you're like, I hope I don't let this person down, you know? And, and also being honest, you know, I told Jim early, I'm like, I'm afraid I'm going to fuck up basically, you know? And like, he's like, I'm right here looking in the camera. I'll tell you it's okay. And I was like, wow. So I can trust you not to, be the person I'm fearful of judging me, I can treat you, and this is the correct thing, like the resource to help me get the performance I want, right? Yeah. And that you want. <laughs> and so yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I think that is like one of the most important things about filmmakers because they're assembling it all the time. Once, usually when they've either written the script or they're with the script writer and doing that, then when they are on set making the pieces, they're, they're assembling it in their heads. And then when they edit it and they post it, they're fully assembling it to the vision they have, right? And you want to be in full contact with that person because that yeah. person is going to tell you a lot about how to get it right or at least be aiming for the right spot. Yeah. And um, to me, that is that is why that kind of a filmmaker is both uh, uh, terrifying in terms of you don't want to let them down, but they're also an extraordinary resource because they – have a vision sam raimi christopher nolan james cameron they have uh an unbelievably strong vision of what it's going to be and they communicate it fairly well or very well right and you can just put that right into your hopper and, and it really helps so in that way i think yes of course those sets are like you look around there's academy award winners and nominees and movie stars and like you know beautiful people and people so talented they can make something work with no effort at all seemingly no effort at all but they, they're so good at it and like you know i went down and watched stephen lang do his first speech you're not a you're not in kansas anymore that's mm-hmm. that kind of speech that he could wind up and make into art right i watch i went down to watch him on my day off because i was like i want to see a theater actor do film at the at that level so i understand what my like perimeters are like well how 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 big can i be how small should i be like we're all kind of doing different things but we're all related to each other in in a, in a palette like that right and so um yeah you you're constantly in awe of the people around you like dicaprio tom hardy joseph gordon levitt you know like there's ken watanabe who's one of the most uh, elegant men that's ever lived right yeah and you're just like Okay, so that's a movie star. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I guess I'm just going to try to do my job, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible privilege. I can't believe more actors don't do that. Like, I'm sure some do, but like in your off, like what you said about Stephen Lang, watching him perform and learning to me, this is the ultimate masterclass. Why people would not take advantage of that time. It's insane to me. So I had a guest on from, um, what was it? What's the movie with that? The Nolan movie. Oh my interstellar. She was yeah. telling me about a, about a, a rule. You can confirm this. I'm sure uh, Christopher Nolan has where no cell phones on set. Yeah. And, I, and, and, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what idiot is bringing a cell phone to a Christopher Nolan set? Like this should be a learning experience from start to finish. Like, well, I mean, look, a, a, you should never have your cell phone on the set. If you can avoid it, especially if the, if the uh, director doesn't want you to have it or the ADs, you know, that's just to keep the continuity of being in the moment. It's really important. I think. Sure. Um, But the other thing is this, man, I I will say this is important to recognize the the way I just talked, the way you spoke about it. We're of the same ilk. We probably take advantage of the situation that way. Not everyone's like that. Not everyone's process is like that. For some people, they need to be in the worldview only of their character so that the character interacts with everything anew. And that that's how they get their impulse to work and to do to respond and live and be there. And they're incredible actors. But like they start to get corrupted if they see too much of it right outside of themselves. So like. It's just a, it's a difference in points of view and difference in like, I mean, then again, like, you know, also how much does Sigourney Weaver need to go down and watch me do something or Stephen Lang, right? She, she's got it. She's good. She's an A-level talent and a superstar, incredible actor has been for the bulk of her entire life. So, you know, I don't know how much she needs to do that. So like, you know, I I understand what you're saying, but like, I, I also understand people are different. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. How do you? How would you compare Cameron and uh, Christopher Nolan when it comes to uh, stuff? We see the final product, so I know how how that works. Like I, I know how their filmmaking works. How do you see those two? You, you you said about Cameron seems very approachable. You know the way he kind of talked to you was is reassuring because it's like you know he, it's a very relaxed kind of um, reassuring way he 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 goes about his process. How, how do the two compare with each other as far as the stuff that we don't see? Well, they're both incredibly articulate, and they can both tell you exactly what is going on, how how to make it work. Um, I think that you know it's interesting because Chris is kind of more uh, he's more uh, intellectually sort of interested in talking in certain ways, whereas Jim is super practical. His genius is in how he sees it at the end. He doesn't need to talk to he can he's obviously super smart and he can talk to you in in ten dollar words all day if he wants, but. He's not super interested in that all the time. Sometimes it's just like nudge it this way, do that, and yeah, yeah, but do that thing you were doing, include that, right? Both those guys are very interested in your what you bring to it and what I've brought to different things in these both those projects, you know, both the Jim's movies and in Inception. Sometimes they're like they're sort of like they should be anyway, in my opinion, derived of what's on the screenplay, but it's also kind of three-dimensionalized and brought into living life by what comes through this instrument and this idea of the character. Right. They're both really sensitive to like that when the thing they see is working and detect, they detect it very early when the thing is alive and they usher that into the work. Um, I think Chris is a lot more, uh, he's sort of, how do I put this? I feel like age wise, since we're kind of closer in age, you know, Right, yeah. that there's a kind of like you're working with your big brother when you're working with him, even though he's the boss. And don't ever mistake that not to be true because he is. Right, right. With Jim, it's more like you're working with uh, a master that you've known when you were younger. So just in terms of like my approachability with him, it's more like I'm looking up to someone who's been there longer. 
you know, gotcha, and I've gotcha, seen more yeah. of his work and stuff. But you know, like these guys are they're when they're that good, it's like more what they're like, you know. Their yeah. differences aren't that aren't that important. They're personal, who they are personally. But like those those guys are so talented, Raimi too, like they're so gifted beyond words that you're like their similarities are they all know what they're shooting. They know exactly what they're shooting to. They're shooting to the cut in their head all the time. And that that is how you know that that's a filmmaker and yeah. not someone who's making television, right? Yeah, and I remember what the first time. And I'm just going to touch on Avatar, and then Inception, and thank you for all this time. By the way, uh, sure, I really appreciate yeah. this. No uh, so, so, so you get the role Avatar. It's your first, I would say, big, big, you know, role. Um, it's my first role. Yeah, in yeah, in front of the camera. So, has I mean, I, I kind of already asked you this, but like the fact that you, you you get this role as your first, it's like going to the Super Bowl as your as your first year as a quarterback. Like it's an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. Um, Hail Mary, I guess you could say. Uh, I was blown away by it. Are you part of the franchise moving forward? I, I mean, I don't want you to say something you don't, you can't. But like, so I so, can't say any more than the fact that I have, I have worked on two and three so far, and wow. um, those are the movies that have been made. Two's out now, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and three comes in two years, so I have done my work on both those pictures. Um, I am, uh, for better or worse, uh, part of the whole group that does all that. But you know, small nice. parts of these movies, but super grateful to Jim and to John Landau on the cast and crew for all the incredible work they do down to the, you know, every single person who puts in a day and yeah. many people put in thousands of days, right. On all these movies. And, um, you just have to be so thankful, grateful, Disney Fox making the movies, yeah. Jim and John protecting Jim's vision and, and getting it right. And, you know, when you see the new one, you'll see like, He's doing something particular and he's spending all that money to make a great cinema theater experience, not a home movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where movies should be seen. Um, you know, you know, I have to, yeah, I have to say it's just the first one caught me off guard, right? We, I, we talked about earlier about yeah. Andor and the emotional feels. I remember after the first avatar go around, I was like, that's a gut punch too. That's a really emotional because I'm thinking about other things. Like it got me thinking about like Native Americans. It got me thinking like on a lot of different levels. And, yeah. and believe me, I'm not I'm not even half as bright as you are. But like it it did get me thinking, right? And and I don't know. There's so much to this, and the fact that this came from James's vision, it's just it's it speaks volumes about everybody. The cast. You mentioned Stephen. I mean, he really sets up that villain role beautifully. Jesus, he's so great. Yeah, I mean, I, I was scared of him. I had nothing to do with the movie. Like, I'm like, what the? Like, he, no joke. Um, what what could people? I'm going to see it this weekend. Um, what could people expect from the from the, the the new Avatar? I think it's deeper. It's richer. It's visually, you know, it's the finest visual picture made in the last 25 to 30 years. I think. Yeah. I think there's probably nothing like it that's ever been seen. Uh, it will take you to a place that's hypnotically like a living dream. Um, but I think the biggest thing that's in this movie is just the feels. Like I think the the vibe of it, the feeling, the, the emotional reality of like this family and what happens. Um, you stop thinking about them as like Navi and yeah. you start thinking about them as a human family almost right and right right you you there's especially between um that second generation and their parents you know uh Nateri and jake and their children uh that whole group of children they've somehow assembled in our parenting uh there is a lot and jim just can just 
he can turn a quick plot moment where your heart just goes in your in your in a blender. You're like, oh my god, yeah. like you know, and and that feel, the ability to produce that kind of emotion. Yeah, I wept. I yeah. wept several times. Sometimes for just sheer beauty, but sometimes yeah. just what's happening is so emotional. Uh, yeah, I, people should expect to be moved and to love it. And I think everyone who sees it loves it. So, uh, for not everyone, obviously, speaking don't, but I, most people I know that have seen it have absolutely loved it. So, yeah, yeah, and, and when watching a movie with an audience, I mean, doesn't that make it so much better? Like, it's like oh, you yeah. feel everyone's emotional, everyone's cheering. Like to me, that's. It's like attending a game, right? It's, but but it's, it's it's that same yeah. like you're you're all in it for the same reasons, right? We're social animals, you know. We do yeah. things in groups. Uh, we, the very first version of what we're talking about right now, and what we're doing right now, where people are around a fire going, "I'm going to tell a story," right? And so like that's a human trait. We're evolved to be that way. It's better to be in a group and watch something than yeah. be by yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I wanted to end with talking about Inception. Um, I have to mm. say, uh, I almost feel like it's so weird. Inception, uh, Avatar, it's to say, to the same degree. But if you took Inception score, Hans Zimmer score, if you took that score, that's like a classic in itself. Like, I mean, Time is one of the most iconic tracks that come out, maybe ever. I mean, I, I've been listening to that on a loop, knowing we were going to speak, and it's yeah, just yeah. like it's just so powerful. And I don't know the cinematography, everything with Inception. You play a huge role, right? And, and it's it's funny because it's a vital role. Um, uh, there was a, um, somebody put on Reddit the other day. Not the other day. I saw it the other day. Uh, you giving the finger in the van. Do you remember that? Like they said. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was one of the like I for, like I, I've watched this movie hundreds of times. So like I totally forgot that. Like it's one. Of, it's a it's a classic moment from a classic film. Yeah, yeah. I loved doing that. That was um, that was like you know I got to do like on the low level nothing complicated, but I got to a lot of the low level driving of the van stunts and like. Um, you know, moving it around so that I would be actually in the picture so it's practical. Right. And because uh, Chris loves that. And so there was a lot of days with me just driving the van either with the cast or just me by myself and the stunt team and Chris and Wally and just, you know, doing that over and over and over again. And it's, you know, that day especially it was just like there's all this rain. It's on Terminal Island where like, you know, there's a bridge that has, it's a graded bridge. So there's like, you, know, you can see right through the water, but it's like a steel grape. So it's supporting yeah. everything. And, uh, it was it, it was an extraordinary day. I remember doing that. It's like it's a bit of fun, and you know, I, I when I first got the part, Chris was like, uh, "I think you need to bring you're going to be the one bringing the humor to this movie because there's not a lot of it, but I yes. expect you to do it, right?" And I was yes. like, uh, "Yeah, duly noted." And he was like, "Have you ever seen Top Cappy? I'd actually just seen it that week." And wow. I'm like, "Are you kidding? I just saw I, I just rented it, you know." And he's like, "I think I would like you to kind of think about Peter Ustinov in that movie." And I was like. Okay, so you want me to get bigger, right? And he's like, "Yes." I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, great." Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I've heard you talk about him on multiple occasions. But what makes Leo special? I know what makes him special. I see it from the outside. Getting to know him as a person and as an actor, what what makes him so special? I think that he's just one of the most talented, hardworking dudes. And those two things, and that person, when you're that good and you're that talented and work that hard, it makes him like the captain of the acting department, right? He's like. He's he's giving it everything, and I would do it anyway. But it just makes it feel a lot more like you could go the extra mile, right? Because that yeah. guy's going the extra mile. Yeah, he's also yeah. super generous as a person. He's super friendly, and he's as a performer, he makes you better. You know. Yeah, yeah. And um, there's a grace to his work that I I really like. I think he can do impossible things and make them look easy, like I was saying earlier. And I think that's the mark of you know some of the best there are. I think he's the best actor of our generation, at least in film for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, hard to argue that. Uh, and, and Chris wanted you playing um, Yusuf, not, not as a drug dealer, right? That that was key to you getting yeah. the part. And, and that's a great story you've told before. But the idea that how you approached it to Chris, how you how Chris saw you portray this, I think that's huge. It's a testament to you and to what Nolan wants, right? I think it, yeah, I agree with that, and I think Chris has really good taste. Yeah, <laughs> um, in terms of like you know what this person would be like, but to me, you know. Um, it's not very easy to do this and sometimes it's harder than others but at least in this instance it seemed kind of clear to me that like the more interesting choice with this character was that he was um an experimenter and that he was at the fringes of what was socially and ethically acceptable in his field that he was a more complex and alloyed figure of both kind of a righteous um almost like a, a, a libertarian let me let me loose to do what i want because the research is so important kind of thing right and at the same time disappointed by like the fact that he to make it personally interesting when he was disappointed he was not like more famous or more accorded a place for the work he'd done and therefore he kind of moved away to where he could do the work in secret and maybe not be as as uh, beloved or as as um credited but that he would have a freedom, but also feel a disappointment. Because I think it's important to have a secret and have a wound in the character like that. Right. And so that's why I think later on, when you see that Cobb promised him his share, as if he would help him go deeper, right? And and, and go further into the dream, uh, that he was amenable to that, that he's, that he's vulnerable to that. That has to come from a place of being, to me, wounded. And, and, and that you're your need for um, something can get transduced into something else. And yeah. so that's why I did that. And so I was like, yeah, he has to be someone who's every single character to me has a purity and then a corruption, right? Yeah. Uh, unless you're Galadriel or something. <laughs> and even then you might by the end. Um, but you have to have a certain amount of like real humility about their pain. And also that no one is interesting if they're somehow just twirling a mustache, right? I thought yeah. Yusuf was like a good team member, but I don't know that he's like ethically totally reliable. And that's right, why I find that right. interesting to play that, right? Like, right, right. And, and, but at the end of the day, he's going to do the right thing and he's got your back, right? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. But that he's also, I also like playing characters that are not um, adroit in uh, all circumstances. He's not a particularly action packed dude. And right. so I made sure the gestures of his being and how he <laughs> held the case and like how he's sitting there in the rain, like that it was all kind of less, um, uh, less easily and skilled uh, deployed. His, his, his behavior is less skillfully deployed than when he's sitting in his office and meeting them all. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I needed some contrast there for myself. So that's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Let thing. me ask you are, are, in the basement scene, uh, the people mm -hmm. looking forward to their dreams, are they addicts? You know, I don't know the language of that diagnosis well enough to be um, judgy about that. I think right. they're bordering on it. Like, I think yeah. not. They're bordering. I think. I think that if addiction, and I, I don't know if I, these, these definitions are even modern anymore, but if addiction is like uh, the use or abuse of a substance or a process to the detriment of your everyday life, like it affects yeah. your life, right? That I think the fact that they're going down there days at a time. You know, the, the, the image I always had of that when I read that was when Holmes would disappear into the opium dens, right, mm. between cases, because he would get depressed and he couldn't handle, like, normal life. Right. And he wanted to just be a high on opium, right, which is what he's, like, doing Oxycontin, basically, right? Right. Um, I find that, you know, I found that image sort of compelling and that if you want to escape into this 
dream world. And then, you know, uh, what's his name? Oh, Cameron, the actor, he's like, how are you to judge them? Right. And you're like, yeah, we all have just a if that was possible, people would be doing like crazy. It'd be a huge problem because if you can delude yourself and go to a place of slight delusion, I think you can live a short term, happier life, but long term disaster. Right. You could just be in what right. pleases you. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. What, 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 what a, what a well-answered question. Um, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, Yusuf, uh, he reminds me, he's very similar to Morpheus from the matrix to me. Not very, but there's similarities, I should say. Sure. Um, do you, do you see that too a little bit? I've never actually thought of that that way, but you yeah. know, now you say it truly. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a certain amount of like authority over the journey and the guide. Like he has some of that, right. But right. I also think Yusuf, to Chris's credit as a writer, Yusuf has a um, he has a part to play in opening certain doors, but then he lets the characters that go through those doors, including Yusuf, have their own versions of their journey that's not as stipulated as like a kind of Morpheus to me is more like a Gandalf figure, you know? Yeah. Where it's like yes. I, I I know the lay of this land better than you. But I also have faith that you'll do what you need to do, right? Yeah. And I think Yusuf is a little more like, a, um, like a code breaker or something. He's like a guy who's like there to open certain doors and make certain things possible. And yeah. um, there's also, you know, there's some really fun stuff we got to do with Joseph and 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 me and Tom and like just like the group dynamics of like being on a team, like the, a heist team, right? And yeah. that stuff is just joyful, just to be one of the many characters in there and the delight he takes in having made the drug and like, you know, the, 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 <laughs> there's a kind of a theme that goes through that character. I always think is I, you know, it's, it was constructed by me deliberately, but it's just little tiny places where it's like, he just, he's not quite part of everything in certain ways. And he just wants a little bit of like, Hey, I'm doing great stuff here. Right. Guys? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and there's a kind of um, it's, it's goofy and it's human and it's fun. And I like doing that. Yeah, was was Nolan in the van during those some of those scenes? Oh, yeah. is he oh, always. That's that's awesome. Like when he when he's doing that, is he is he giving direction? Is he like what is he? Uh, obviously, he's a director, but like what what is he telling you? Uh, you know, sometimes it's like as little as I just do it, and we got it in one, and he's like, "That's it," and like you know, the moment right, I I I made the gag where I was like, "Did you see that?" You know, and like everyone everyone's yeah. asleep, right? And so yeah. I made that up, right? And I was like, I yeah. think he's like, "Do you have something for this?" Like, yeah, yeah. I, I've been working on my trailer on it. And I was like, I think this is it. And so I did it and we got it at one. He's like, that's it. Cut it. And I was like, Oh, uh, that's it. So he's like, no, you, he's like, no, I'm happy. I'm fine. Just stop. It's good. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and other times he's like, uh, you know, like he'll be like, careful here, drive a little faster, faster, slower. Right. Can you see out the front? No. Okay. Well, don't go too fast. Then. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot of that. So like, you know, he's, he's very practical, but he's also super, He's there. He's always there. While he's, you know, in the corner with the with the camera, like in my face, and I'm like looking around hurriedly. And there's like, there's oh, he, he's. What's great about Chris? I'll tell you that, that it's true of all of them, but it's in that movie particularly because there's a lot of it because it's very practical. Is that anytime there's a stunt happening, like where they've rigged a, a, a motorcycle to as the van moves, it'll draw the motorcycle on, on a rope closer so the collision happens exactly where the yeah. camera's set, right? Yeah. Um, he will explain that to you in absolute detail as with Jim or anyone else, but like he will make sure you understand it and that the sub guy, you know, Tom service was with us going, yeah, yeah, this is what it is. Um, so it's very, very clear. And I really appreciate that. 
Yeah, yeah, and he, and he pulls no punches. I guess in Oppenheimer, he really created the explosion himself. Like he, he, the, the explosion isn't like CGI or anything. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but like that's all. That's Nolan, man. He is like he's he's I'm, old. I'm just, glad, I'm just glad it's not an actual fission explosion. <laughs> uh, two more questions. Uh, thank you. Uh, the, one okay. of which is, how cool is it to be on that movie poster? I have some of it here. Um, how cool is it to be on that Inception? Oh, poster? you know, uh, there's a funny story about that. So I. Uh, I got to, because I had a friend who was in the Warner Brothers marketing department, a friend of a friend, and she works in there. And they made a special, like, you know, I'm not high enough on the list of people that were, your team seeing the marketing is important to your brand, because I don't have a brand. I didn't yeah. then, I don't now, right? But she was like, we're going to give you the same treatment. So I got to go out and see all this stuff, right? And yeah. so I saw the trailers, and I saw, like, and it was like, just like, you know, it's like being a movie star for a second. And then they showed me the poster, and I was like, oh, my God, Right. And then that next week was the first screening for the cast. The effects weren't even totally done yet. We were just seeing sort of the assembly and some of the work that Chris had done just to show us, right? And so I went in and I'm like, I was like, and obviously like Chris decides what's on everything, right? Like Chris, yeah. Chris is the guy. And I walk in, I'm like, and I hug him and I'm like, I can't believe I'm on the poster. I'm so surprised. And he goes, oh. can I and he goes, can I tell you I'm surprised you're on the poster? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I, I was always like, oh, you know, like, but then obviously I realized later on, I was like, oh, I don't think, the, I don't think Warner Brothers foisted that on him. I'm sure he chose it. Yeah, um, but please, uh, it was. Please tell me you own a copy of it. Oh yeah. I, oh, oh, good. Yeah, yeah. All right, good. Excellent, excellent. Um, uh, so I, I think his most underrated movie is Insomnia. I think that's so under the radar. Nolan's movie. I think it's beautiful. I mean, I sometimes you, I forget he directed it, right? Because he's got so many projects. Uh, what's your yeah. favorite Nolan? What's your favorite Nolan work? The, the Prestige. Yeah, yeah. It's that. That's a genius movie too. I mean, and it's, it's hard because so good. Yeah, and you didn't have to think about it. It, it is. It is one of the more underrated movies of his. I feel it. Like. I mean, people that see it love it. But like I feel like it's because he's done so much, it's often and he's directed the three best outside of the original Superman. The the three he directed are are the best for my money comic book movies ever. Ever. I mean, yeah, the, I, I think that's probably right. Oh, yeah. I think that I think Spider-Man 2, Raimi's Spider-Man 2 is very that's high pretty damn me. good. Yes. That's a yes. very high bar for me in terms of like yes. what you could accomplish in a movie like that. I think the Dark Knight is the best superhero film I've ever seen. Yes. You know? Um, and I think Batman Begins is really up there too. Like I think that's a fantastic film, and it's yeah. spooky and weird. And the you know when he does the breathe and he breathes in that drug, and then they have this camera effect where like the room is kind of like doing this shit where like the camera's shaking, and you're like, I'll tell you, I saw that movie in the um, theater in 2005 when it came out, and there was a movie theater in the building my sister was living in in New York at the time. She was between undergrad and grad doing and. Uh, a residency at some, you know, think tank. She's an economist, and um, I saw that movie, and I was it's oh five, and I just done a play, and I got, I was visiting her, and I was like, it was so funny. I mean, it makes no difference, but I was walking through the lobby out of it, and I was like, I vowed that I'm going to work with that director one day. And wow! I was, like, you know, I was I promised it to myself, and then, you know, I had never even been in front of a camera to any merit at that point, and wow. I thought that, and you know, what the hell, like. It, Life has a funny way of just turning out. And, you know, I'm very proud of that movie that we made together. My favorite film is The Prestige, though. Yeah, when, 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 and in the original, Batman Begins, when, 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 when I think it's Batman Begins, where he rides off and, and, and Gordon is with his son and, and he's like, where's he going? But he, he goes, and he, Gordon says, and he goes, the kid goes, but he didn't do anything wrong. Like, I, that whole scene, I'm just like, oh, like, I don't know. No one's got a knack for that. Uh, what, what is around the corner for you? Um, is there anything you wanted to throw out there? 
nothing really. I mean, just please go see Avatar 2. I'm in it a little bit here and there, but more importantly, the movie's great. Um, I'm just, you know, like any working actor, next job is the next job. We'll see what happens. Yeah, man, I'm a fan. And thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate every second. You're very welcome, man. It's good to see you. Take care of yourself. Thank you for listening to Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also connect with Monday Morning Critic on Instagram and Facebook, MDM Critic on Twitter, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found. All episodes available, www.mmcpodcast.com.